Hello there, it's Peter from Nourishing Soulfully and you're listening to the Nourishing Soulfully podcast. Now I am currently on maternity leave and whilst I'm on maternity leave I have scheduled up fortnightly podcast episodes taken from the archives of my two other podcasts nourish heal your relationship with food and eat move live intuitively i hope that you find this episode really valuable even if you've listened to it before i really recommend having a listen again just because it can often bring up other stuff and we'll notice different things much like if we read a book again that we maybe hadn't noticed before as always if you could rate and review this podcast it would mean ever so much to me but what would mean even more to me is if you could share this episode if you found it valuable with others because this will help the podcast be found by many many more people remember you can also find so much content on the nourishing soulfully website and the blog at nourishingsoulfully.com and if you're fancying a little bit of self-development a little bit of self-care time and focusing on creating that self-kindness and self-compassion and getting to really know yourself, Elevate, the course in self-kindness is available as a self-paced course even whilst I'm on maternity leave. Head to nourishingselfly.com to find out more and let's delve into this week's episode. Why you fail at dieting or does it fail you? Welcome to Eat, Move, Live Intuitively with me, Peter Coote. I am a certified non-clinical intuitive eating coach and eating psychology coach and self-kindness guide. So let's delve into this week's episode on dieting and why you're failing at dieting or maybe whether actually dieting might be failing you. So diets are created not to work and I imagine that the majority of diets you have tried have never worked long term. There are over 30,000 diet books and a recent survey of 2,000 British people found that the average amount of diets a person had tried in their lifetime was 126. Yes, 126 diets in a lifetime. So when was the first time you began dieting? How old were you when you began restricting food for weight loss or exercising to lose weight? The average girl in the Western world goes on her first diet at the age of eight. And that age only seems to be lowering with measuring of weight in schools becoming more commonplace within our society. And as researcher John Ferrate said in his book, Living Without Dieting, dieting is like holding your breath. At some point, you have to breathe. In the book, The Diet Myth, Tim Spector, head of department, Um, and he is within the Department of Twin Research and Genetic Epidemiology in the School of Life Courses Sciences, shares over the course of his career, he has studied 11,000 twins over a period of 20 years. One study looked at 12 twins over the course of their childhood, teens and adulthood. Something these studies looked at was, does dieting support long-term weight loss? Tim and his teams were able to study pairs of twins where one twin dieted over the years and one twin did not. On average, from the age of 16 to 25, the twin who had dieted was 1.5 kilos heavier 
than the twin who hadn't dieted. Our bodies adapt rapidly to any change we make in terms of food and exercise because that's what they've always done, that's what they're made to do. And this was shown in a study of people who lived a very sedentary lifestyle. So this group of people um, spent most of their time sitting down there, very still. They didn't move very much at all. And so what um, this study looked at was getting these people to exercise intensely for six months. So going from a very still lifestyle to one with a lot of movement, during those six months, how much weight do you think they lost? One and a half kilos, that's 3.3 pounds. After six weeks of intense dieting, our bodies adapt. So only six weeks, it doesn't take long for the body to adapt. And it wants to hold on to fat stores. Our metabolism slows down, as does the amount of energy we use to do things. Fat and fit is always better than thin and not moving very. We often believe that thin people are healthy, but that's because we can't see the fat which cushions their vital organs. The diet and fitness industry has one main message it delivers in all kinds of different ways. If you exercise and eat in the right way, you can achieve any body shape and size you'd like. But did you know that your body shape and size relies upon over 100 variants, not just food and exercise? There are over 100 factors, including, but not limited to, genetics, which explains 60 to 70% of the differences in people. Family history, family culture and routine, socioeconomic status, where we live, our activity levels, our race and ethnicity, age, sex, where we work, our culture, our sleep, medical conditions, our community, among many, many other things. Studies have shown that our body shape is 80% determined by our genes alone. A really, really interesting study looked at 500 adopted children comparing their weight with their adopted parents and their biological parents. Now, if weight is largely dictated by food and exercise and environment, the children's weight would be similar to the adoptive parents' weight. But it wasn't. In fact, researchers found that the children's weight correlated strongly with the weight of their biological parents and not at all with the weight of their adoptive You can influence your weight, but really only within your set weight range. In the aforementioned book, Dr. Tim Spector explains that the amount of calories we absorb depends on our rate of digestion, absorption, microbes in our gut and size of large intestine. We are all so unique, so this can't be something based on an average. So this is kind of sort of making sense now, isn't it? The jigsaw pieces of why dieting hasn't worked for you long term are beginning to slot together. What about calorie deficit diets? The premise is, if we just eat within a calorie deficit, so less calories than we burn, we'll lose weight. Again, a few issues here. Long term, this isn't sustainable. Our bodies adapt and hold on to fat stores. And as I mentioned before, our genetics play a large role in our body shape and size. And even if a calorie deficit did work long term, Food manufacturers don't print accurate calorie measurements on packets. So foods like almonds usually contain a 30% overestimation of calories. Processed frozen foods underestimate calories by about 70% and high fibre products by about 30%. Manufacturers are legally allowed an error rate of 20% on all packaging. Food manufacturers are going to go to 
they're gonna they're gonna pull all the stops out to make food as attractive as possible and at the moment we live in a society that really favors calorie counting so therefore they're going to make sure that wherever they can underestimate the amount of calories in the more popular foods like those highly processed foods and the high fiber products they're going to in order to sell more but let's say it did work let's say if we were accurately able to tell how many calories were in our meals and snacks would that sort of diet work then a study of 42 monkeys over two years was held where the monkeys in each group were given the same amount of calories but different meals one set had meals high in vegetable oils and the other set had meals with trans fats, so processed foods like baked goods, snacks, foods, fried foods, shortening margarine have trans fat within them. So we tend to consider meals high in trans fat as junk food. And as you can probably imagine, the group eating the meals higher in trans fat put on more weight. The argument that the less calories you consume, the more weight you'll lose doesn't really stand to be true. A calorie isn't just a calorie. One calorie of vegetable oil isn't the same as one calorie of trans fat. Tracy Mann, a researcher in willpower and dieting, looked into why we don't have much data on how well diets work. And in her book, Secrets from the Eating Lab, Tracy explains that in the 1990s, a panel was created by the Federal Trade Commission to create guidelines for advertising weight loss products. And as I'm sure you can probably already imagine, this panel included representatives from many of the commercial diets around at the time. The panel decided not to offer data in the efficiency of diets in the short term or long term, or even how many people had actually completed them because, and I quote, dieters will be discouraged if they are provided with realistic outcome data. 30 years on, diet companies still don't have to share this information in marketing. Commercial diet companies like Weight Watchers and Nutrisystem claim that they can't collect long-term data on the effectiveness of their diets. And this kind of begs the question, can't they or are they just not willing to? Richard Samba, the financial chairman for Weight Watchers, likened dieting to playing the lottery. If you don't win, you play again. Maybe you'll win a second time. And he was asked why the business could be so successful when only 16% of customers maintained the weight they lost. And his reply was, it's successful because the other 84% have to come back and do it again. That's where the business comes from. According to Weight Watchers, the average member enrolls on four separate program cycles, but they say nothing about how well this works. And from what I've learned, I doubt it works all too well at all. So let's look at the flip side of the studies mentioned. Researchers took a group of people and worked to kind of study how efficiently they could make them gain 20% of their body weight and hold on to that body weight gain. So we're going the other side. Instead of losing weight, we're looking at putting on weight. And some people had to eat over 10,000 calories a day in order to gain the weight. Some people just couldn't gain the weight at all. The participants gained less weight than the scientists predicted they would, and interestingly, they couldn't hold on to that weight without continuing to eat at least 2,700 calories a day to maintain it. Otherwise, they lost the weight. If you have trouble losing weight and keeping to a set weight you've deemed the weight, it isn't because of a lack of willpower. Willpower is linked to self-control. But scientists have proven that while self-control plays a major role in schoolwork, academic achievements, happiness, depression, eating is far, far, far less influenced by the self-control ability than any other behaviour. Self-control only matters half as much. 
Sometimes, on the outside, it may look to us that someone has an incredible ability when it comes to willpower and self-control around food. For example, you may offer a friend a slice of cake and they decline immediately. You feel awful and think how good their self-control is compared to yours. But it may just be that they simply aren't tempted by that specific food at all. Maybe that friend just isn't really into cake. This is what researchers call apparent self-control. Either the person doesn't want something or they're sick of it. So um, interestingly, I was speaking to somebody I know who used to work in a chocolate factory for a very well-known chocolate brand in the UK. And on the line, they were encouraged to eat chocolate all day long so that they could try the chocolate. And if there were any issues with the chocolate, if something was wrong, they would be the first to pick it up and that chocolate wouldn't go out to the public and be sold in shops. And so they were kind of encouraged all day long on the line to eat chocolates, to try chocolates as they were working. This person said that they just, chocolate just isn't for them because it was, it was so readily available. They could have it whenever they wanted that years and years later, they no longer work in the chocolate factory. They're not all too bothered by chocolate. If someone offered them a chocolate, the likelihood is they'd say, no, thanks, I'm all right. That's not because they've got some incredible willpower and self-control. It's because they're fed up of chocolate. They had it for a while. They, it was readily available. They could have it whenever they wanted. And it's not on that pedestal. Tracy Mann once shared that nearly every study on self-control she has ever conducted or studied has demonstrated the reasons why self-control often fails us. She has proven that there are so many variables that can affect self-control and they all fall into one category, circumstances. Are you stressed? Are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? Have you been controlling yourself in other areas all day and now you're just tired? Willpower is a limited resource, which is why diets don't work. We can't muster up endless amounts of willpower. It doesn't work like that. A study was created to test this theory where people were put in a room with a plate of radishes and a plate of freshly baked um, potatoes, no, freshly baked cookies, still warm from the oven. So the participants were told that they were taking part in a study around taste perception and that they had been assigned to taste radishes. And they were left alone and they, of course, exercised enough self-control to not taste a cookie as it was only for a very short amount of time. The participants were then given a puzzle to solve and it was made to look really simple, but it was actually really difficult. The group that had to resist the cookies weren't able to exercise the same amount of willpower to keep on figuring out that puzzle as the group who didn't have to resist cookies at all. They'd already used up a huge portion of their willpower. Even making choices depletes our ability to use self-control as we wish. So just think about how many choices you make in the day. Whilst we can train things like muscles to work more efficiently, for some reason we can't amplify how much willpower we have. We're simply not made to willfully resist food. And sometimes we need to delve into this further and understand why. Because diets often talk about how we just need to use our self-control or willpower to gain results. And that just scientifically isn't possible. Let's move on to the messages we receive around food and how this influences us. Descriptive labels, even when they don't provide meaningful information, influence how we think about foods. Researchers proved this by changing the names of some dishes in a college cafeteria. Chicken parmesan was changed to homestyle chicken. And zucchini cookies were changed to grandma's zucchini cookies. 
Students found them more appealing to look at. They said they tasted better and thought they had more calories. They also found them more satisfying and they felt fuller after eating the fancier versions. Another experiment was conducted where participants' hormone levels were recorded before, during and after a milkshake. They were all given two milkshakes to try on, se- on two separate occasions, so one was described as decadent, indulgent and containing 640 calories, the other as non-fat, guilt-free and containing 140 calories. Little did the participants know they were the same milkshake. When consuming the milkshake described as decadent, indulgent and containing 640 calories, the hormone ghrelin levels which signal hunger decreased a lot after consumption. When given the milkshake described as having lower calories, their ghrelin levels stayed about the same, signalling that they weren't fully satisfied and remained hungry. It's not only the actual food that matters, it's our thoughts about foods that matter too. So let's think about the language used around food and advertising. Things like, that's a bit naughty though, and guilty pleasure. These words induce that feeling of something we shouldn't be having. When we feel like this, we then get feelings of guilt afterwards. And so then we try to restrict ourselves. What this does is it sends signals to our brain and it's been proven that we actually end up craving and wanting the thing even more. Because that wonderful hormone has been released, those levels stay the same, and it's signalling to our body that we're not fully satisfied and we're still hungry. How we think about our bodies is something we learn, and this learning is influenced by our individual characteristics, families, cultural groups, peers and media sources. We learn body image by comparing ourselves to others and by observing and listening to role models. Humans are influenced by media messages promoting unrealistic, idealised and stereotypical body types. As I said before, this learning starts very young. So not only does the average girl go on her first diet at the age of eight, but children as young as five express dissatisfaction with their bodies and they're also aware of ways to control body size and appearance. The media celebrates certain types of behaviours and appearances. It leaves a strong impression on those watching. It shapes the viewer's idea of what will make them popular, attractive and happy. Or the opposite, unpopular, unattractive and unhappy. And whilst we've come a long way with films portraying females in strong, powerful roles, those roles are still being played by attractive, slim females, thus sending the message that powerful and strong equals attractive and thin. In children's TV shows, good characters are often depicted as thin, beautiful, kind and successful, whereas the baddies are depicted as overweight, cruel, and essentially characteristics which do not conform to society's definition of attractive. This research has been supported by a variety of scholars examining children's media. And according to research by Hayes and Tantliff Dunn in 2010, the result of this is children associating positive virtues with the possession of a slim, beautiful body based on the examples of characters they like and identify with in literature and movies. Sadly, 99.9% of images are now digitally modified or enhanced to meet today's societal ideals. So when you think about children, teenagers using apps like Snapchat, for example, the moment you open Snapchat or TikTok and the camera is on you, it is already digitally modifying the image. There is already a filter placed on it before you even pick filters. It's already enhancing um, the way that that person looks. And I don't believe that children understand enough around how images are changed to 
in quotation marks, improve them because I don't believe adults understand just how edited these images are. When we see these images in magazines and adverts and on TV or on the tube, our mind subconsciously processes that as normal. Some studies claim that we see up to 20,000 adverts a day. So it's kind of understandable that after seeing so many digitally modified images around us, when we look in the mirror, our body doesn't seem to add up to that new normal. And we begin comparing ourselves to the physically unachievable digitally modified bodies, as do our children. Anne Becker, an expert on eating disorders at Harvard Medical School in Boston, decided to look into this and she chose to study females in Fiji because up until the mid-1990s there was only one reported case of anorexia nervosa in the whole country and Fijian culture valued large, strong women. It had a very positive message around women eating a lot. In 1995, the government of Fiji allowed Western TV shows to be broadcast on the television stations in Fiji and even then, remote parts of the country were only just starting to hear about TV. In 1998, Becker held a small survey, which was later reported in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2002. Just three years after Western media arrived in the country, one in every ten girls reported having vomited to lose weight. Three years after it had arrived. By 2007, Becker's team had spent over a decade studying the impacts of the media on females in Fiji. More than 500 girls aged 15 to 20 were surveyed and the results showed that at least four in every 10 reported vomiting to manage their weight. This report also showed that the girls didn't have to directly consume Western media, they were being influenced by those in their social circle, family and friends who had consumed Western media. And this has also been shown to be the case in control groups when positive body image interventions have been trialled in primary schools. The control groups who did not receive the intervention showed significantly improved body image due to their peers having experienced the interventions. Start noticing the messages we subconsciously receive and paying attention, a little like an observer without judgment to how they make you feel. And not just the messages that you're receiving online, on social media, but actually the messages that you're receiving from co-workers, friends, family, people that you chat to, your neighbour, etc. And so I hope our time together today has reassured you in a way that you haven't failed at dieting. Dieting and the promises it has made you has failed you. But what now? What if you're not on a diet? How do you eat? What can you eat? When can you eat? And this is one of the issues I think that diet culture and the diet industry, the fitness industry has created. We're so reliant on someone or something or an app telling us what to eat, when to eat, how much we can eat, that we're no longer able to tune into those hunger cues, those fullness cues, the food, what foods that we fancy eating, what foods feel good in our body, what foods keep us energised and sustain those energy levels. And this is where intuitive eating comes in. So if you haven't heard about it before, intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework. There are no rules. It's, it kind of supports you in healing your relationship with food and eating and learning to tune into the foods you want to eat when you want to eat them. So through eating intuitively, you learn how to tune back into your hunger and fullness cues. You become aware of which meals and snacks sustain your energy levels, which meals and snacks make you feel wonderful and cosy and soothed and full and content and healthy. 
and which meals and snacks leave you rapidly feeling pretty hungry and unsatisfied afterwards. And guess what? It's not the same for every person. And it's not like if you go to, um, if you work with a certified intuitive eating facilitator or counsellor like myself, you're not going to be given a food plan. They're not going to be like, right, this is the intuitive eating food plan. Here you go. This is what you're eating this week. Not at all. There are no plans with intuitive eating. So if you do decide that you would like to look into this and work with somebody, if they are offering you a food plan, that isn't intuitive eating. That's another diet. So when we're learning to eat intuitively, what we're essentially doing is we're letting go of dieting and we're learning how to eat in our own way that makes us feel our very best self without other influences affecting those decisions and those choices that we're making for us. We're taking true care for ourselves and of ourselves. And that is what self-care is. It isn't all bubble um, bubble baths and face masks and things like that. It's taking proper care of ourselves. It's feeding ourselves the food that we need, nurturing our bodies and our minds and treating our bodies with respect. So within intuitive eating, there are 10 principles um, that kind of guide you to healing your relationship with food. And it, and it begins with letting go of diet culture, those judgmental thoughts, looking at the stories we have around food, the beliefs we have around food, our rules, and looking at what serves us and actually what isn't serving us at all, maybe what we use to punish ourselves with, etc. You look at um, honouring your hunger and tuning back into hunger cues. And for many, um, that won't be possible immediately because we've spent so long ignoring hunger cues that it takes a while to tune back into that interceptive awareness. So interceptive awareness um, is the awareness of the signals that your body is sending you. We look at um, honouring and respecting fullness. So beginning to really feel into oh, I'm, I'm pretty full now and actually I'm okay to stop eating. I don't feel this need to continue eating. I don't feel this need to be uncomfortably full and punish myself, af- myself afterwards because I feel like I've eaten too much. Within intuitive eating as well, you look at exercise and maybe how you have used this in the past and going forward how you would like to incorporate joyful movement within your life rather than exercise for punishment, but moving for joy, moving because you respect your body, you want to feel good in your body, you want to feel strong. And finally, the the final principle within intuitive eating is gentle nutrition, and it's looking at the foods that feel good within your body, that make you feel your best self. We leave this principle to last because if if we haven't done all of the healing process and the learning process, we can turn gentle nutrition into a diet. We can make rules around what we should and shouldn't be eating. And that's what we are pulling away from. That's what we're backing away from and um, making a clean cut so we never return back to dieting again in that diet cycle. And within gentle nutrition, what I often look at with my clients is um, they may be have a chronic illness or they may um, they may they may be women who have um, a menstrual cycle and really struggle at certain times of their menstrual cycle with food and energy levels um, they may be someone who is on the go and 
they struggle with feeding themselves when that when that's the case when they live a busy life they may be looking at eating intuitively and not having a diet to follow but within a family setting or within a cohabiting setting um and so it is simple the the premise of intuitive eating is simple but it isn't easy it takes a lot of patience um, and a lot of self-kindness to get there because you're undoing a lifetime of food beliefs and behaviors and rules and so it's not something that we can just kind of switch a flick a switch and and um be an intuitive eater but oh my goodness it is so worth it for the mind space it frees up for the connection that you have with your body, that you feel that you can trust your body. Because once you feel you can trust your body around food, you start being able to trust yourself around other things as well, other choices that you're making. And that's really empowering. It means that you grow in self-confidence and self-belief, which is something I think we all need. So if you'd like more information about intuitive eating, please hop on over to nourishingsoulfully.com or feel free to send me an email, Peter, that's P-E-T-A at nourishingsoulfully.com. And I can send resources over to you. Um, I have a course in intuitive eating called Nourish, which is an online um, program over the course of 12 weeks. I also offer one-to-one coaching as well in, in intuitive eating. If you feel like that, you need someone to kind of guide you and hold your hand and, and walk you through it in a really gentle and kind way. Until next week, I am going to leave you there, but it has been a pleasure speaking to you about dieting today. And I hope that you are reassured and you're starting to finally understand why actually you are not the problem when it comes to diets. It's diets that are the problem. Remember, be gentle, be kind. You are doing the best you can, always. Sending lots of love your way.